Um, for those who are new here, we're continuing our journey through the Old Testament, uh, Blazing Grace, and we're getting a pretty decent way through the Kings. And this is now our fourth sermon on um, the, the story of David. And I like what Blair was saying about the heroes of faith. And when I came to preach um, on, on start, start preaching through the story of David, uh, following on from um, Judy, I was thinking, man, what an awesome privilege to preach on David, such a, a man of faith and integrity and such a, a, a standout story throughout Scripture. And I did the first sermon, and I was reading through, and I was just like, this is a pretty bad sort of a story. There's not a lot of high points in this. And then last week's one, when I got to study that part, I was like, this, is a, this story is, is getting worse. And this week, I was like, all right, now we're going to look at the last part of David's life, which really starts touching on the story of his, his children and Absalom. And I was thinking, wow, this story just gets worse. It, it, so it starts bad, it gets worse, and it ends terrible. And so I was struggling to sort of come up with what are, we going to, what are the lessons we're going to come draw out of this story. And the message which really started, which at the end, which I want to preach on today, is something that has really challenged me, and I hope that it's going to be something that's going to challenge you as well. The title of my sermon is What Might Have Happened. Now, we're going to be sort of using our imaginations a little bit, but to help us to understand what might have happened if things went differently, we're going to examine the story of David and we're going to compare it to the story of Joseph. Now, what I discovered this week is that the story of Joseph and... If that's going to go to the next slide. There we go. The story of Joseph and the story of David are actually very similar. And especially even the way that the Bible writers present the story of David, it's almost in some ways like a retelling of the story of Joseph in many aspects of the story. For example, I'm going to give you 10 quick points of how they're similar. They both begin, begin as shepherd boys. Okay? They both had many older, older brothers. Joseph was the second youngest of 12, and David had seven older, older brothers. Um, they were both chosen by God to rule. So we see in the story of Joseph, he gets these dreams, and in these dreams he sees the sun, moon, and 11 stars bowing down to him. And then when we see in the story of David, we see along comes Samuel and anoints him to be, that he's going to be king. And so both of these people from a very young age were given this calling from God that one day they will be in a position of authority, one day they will be in a, a situation where they are ruling over a, a large amount of people. The next thing is they were both ridiculously handsome. Now, I don't know why the scripture um, notes this, but you get to both of them, and, and it's something that really stands out about both Joseph and David. Another thing, they both had fathers who didn't believe in them. We see with Joseph, um, when he tells his dad about this dream, about how the heavenly um, stars and the moon and that were bowing down to him, his father says, what do, you, do you think that your father and your mother and your brothers will one day bow bow down to, and he rebukes his son for having this, this, this ambitious vision of the future, even though it was a vision that God himself had given him. And we see in the story of, of David, along comes Samuel, and he's going to anoint the next king of Israel, and, and, and Jesse, David's, David's father, summons his oldest, and then he summons the second oldest, and he gets all seven of his sons, minus little David, and he doesn't even bother to bring him along. And so both of these, both Joseph and David, both begin their lives um, really being the younger sibling 
And their parents and their family probably didn't think much of them, and maybe they didn't think much of themselves either. Point number six. They were both sent to check on their brothers. We see this with um, Joseph. He's sent to check on his brothers who are tending the sheep. And what happens to him when he goes there? He gets thrown into a pit and then eventually sold off to, to Egypt. And we see the story of David. He gets sent to go check on his brothers in the war situation. And he gets rebuked and, um, and they're not very happy with They're hostile towards him as well in that situation. The next thing is both are supernaturally blessed. We see Joseph, when he goes to Egypt, he goes there as a slave. And before, um, before he knows, he's, he's looking after Potiphar's household. And then he goes to um, the prison. And basically everything that Joseph touches, his hands touch, turns to gold. Everything he does succeeds. And we see the exact same thing happen with the story of David as well. David, um, he, he fights against Goliath and this person who's far superior than him, this, this giant of a person... And with a single um, stone in his sling, he, he slays the giant. And then he goes and he plays his harp for Saul. And, every, and then pretty soon, Saul is seeing the same thing about David, that whatever he puts in, in his care, he's successful at. And so he sends him out in battle. And every battle that David goes to, he's, he's, um, he's successful in that. Point number eight. Both are accelerated into positions of responsibility. We see that with, with, um, with Joseph. He's there as a slave. Before he knows, he's, he's in charge of the house. He's in, in the prison cell. Before he knows, he's, he's, he's in charge and looking after the prison. And then even beyond that, he goes to second in charge over Egypt. And Joseph as well, I mean, sorry, David as well, when he goes and he spends time with Saul playing the harp, before he knows, he's, he's Saul's armor bearer. And then very soon, Saul even puts him in charge over all of his armies because God is just with David and supernaturally blessing him. Point number nine, both had a series of disappointments that paved the way for their calling. And we see that um, Joseph sold as a slave, then he's, then he's put into prison, and, so there's, and then he's forgotten about by the, the people who revealed their, their dream to them in the prison. And so disappointment after disappointment after disappointment, but God uses those disappointments as a way to providentially lead Joseph towards the calling that he has upon his life. And we see that with David as well. Um, the sermon I preached two weeks ago, we, we saw that um, David, he was, he was really um, excelling in the kingdom, he was being successful, and then Saul turns his face against, against David and starts throwing spears at him, and he lives the next chunk of his life running around as a fugitive, just desperate to even just survive, let alone become king. But all of these things also we see the hand of God leading and providentially guiding um, David and to eventually he becomes king over Israel. And the final thing is that both came into power by age 30, which is just a little detail, but it's quite interesting that there's such significance. Joseph is in charge over um, Egypt, age 30 it says, and David becomes king when he's age 30. And for those who are familiar with the rest of Scripture, we see that Jesus himself entered his ministry at the age of 30 as well. So there's all these really interesting parallels. And so the story of Joseph and the story of David, in many ways, are very similar stories. Now, another way that these stories are similar is both of them met a similar sort of temptation. We see in Genesis chapter 39 and verse 7, it says, And after a long time... His master's wife, that's, that's Potiphar's wife, cast 
her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. So Joseph suddenly finds himself in, thrown into a situation of temptation, and what is he going to do? David as well, we see, is thrown into a similar temptation as well. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Now, but neither of them orchestrated these situations, but both of them found themselves in situations of sudden temptation. And when we look at their lives, we see that God's hand is upon their lives. God is preparing them and setting them up for success. But when we look at their lives, we also see that the devil also had his eye upon them, and the devil was looking for any opportunity that he could to bring about some sort of a, a fall, some sort of a destruction. And it makes me think, what difference does a decision make? We look at these people's lives and so similar all the way through and now they both face a decision. And as we, go, as we know for those who've been, who know the, the stories or been following the series, both make a very different decision at this point. What, decision, what difference does a decision make? It reminds me of something that happened to me only a couple of weeks ago when I was, I was over in Mongolia and on the way back we stopped in Seoul. Now, if anyone's been to Seoul in um, South Korea before, it's a very large city of around about 10 million people. And so we had lots of fun trying to just navigate ourselves around this city where basically no one speaks English. And apart from on the subway, there's very few signs in English as well. And for the first couple of days that we were there, I was basically, it was myself and my, my friend Lachlan, and I was basically organizing a lot of the things that we were doing. And I was kind of dragging Lachlan along to all the things that I wanted to do. I dragged him up this, this big hiking mountain thing in, in the national park, and he enjoyed it, but I was sort of thinking, man, I'm sort of, I'm sort of making Lachlan do all the things that I want to do over here. So I thought, all right, Lachlan, how about you um, just plan the final day that we have in Seoul? And so we get up, wake up on the, on the morning of, of our final day, and we, we're going to catch the flight later that afternoon, and he's, he wants to go to this... Um, he wants to go and find these, these shopping outlets. And there's these really giant shopping outlets in, in, in this part of Korea. And, and so, okay, all right, so we get there, we hop on the subway, we look at the, different, the, the subway map, and we get to the subway station, and we hop out, and I say, all right, so uh, where do we find this, this place? And he goes, oh, we have to catch bus, I think it was 210 or something like that. And I'm like, okay, um, now, where do we find that bus? And we look up there, and we see a bus station, we go there, and there's two 10 buses going this direction, and there's two 10 buses going this direction. Now, all the signs are in um, Korean, so we have no idea which one to hop on. So we just go, oh, let's just take a stab at it. And we hop on a bus, and we're going along, and I'm like, so Lachlan, um, so what's the station that we're looking for? How long do we stay on this bus? And he goes, oh, I don't really know. We're just going to sort of hopefully see it when we're going along. So we're going along, like, like this is a terrible plan. And so... Along we go on this bus, and we're waiting, and we're waiting, and we're waiting, and I'm looking at my watch, and it gets to about 30 or 40 minutes on this bus, and I'm like, Lachlan, I think we need to hop off this bus, because we have no idea where we're going. We don't even know what we're looking for. And so we hop off the bus, and we're just in, completely lost in, in this giant city. And so we start trying to find a taxi that can take us back to a subway station, which is a big drama, because we hop on these tax, taxis, and they don't speak a word of English, and eventually we find someone who we, we manage to communicate it to us and we get to the subway station and 
I go in there and we look at where we are on the big map, and we're literally on the other side of the city from where we were wanting to be. And so we were so lost. And so at this point, I'm like, well, I better take charge. Lachlan, obviously, is just going to get us lost. So I go, I'll go, okay, my turn to sort of try and work out where we're going to go. And we're going to go to a different, we didn't know where those outlets were. We're going to go to a different outlet um, store. This one's like the biggest one in Asia or something like that. And so we, we, we get on the subway and we spend another half an hour or so getting to this, this station. And we get there and I have my little map on my phone and we're following it and, and I'm just like, so confident that I'm just going to um, just show up Lachlan's navigating skills and map reading skills. And we get around the corner, I'm just waiting for this huge big um, shopping complex to appear, and I hop around that corner and it's just residential houses. And I'm just like, oh no, I've n-. And, I'm, and I realize that I'm equally as lost and equal, equally hopeless at finding my way around a big city. And so we eventually find an, a taxi driver who then manages to get us to where we're wanting to go. Um, and it was about four hours of being lost in this city. We eventually get to this outlet. We only have like an hour left to, to find something. We find nothing we want to buy. And then we're running late for the, um, the airport. And so we have our backpacks on. We go back to the um, hotel we were staying. And we're, we're literally running to try and make this, this um, train. And... We see that there's two trains we can catch. One of them we see we missed by about three minutes, and the last one is about to leave. And this, basically, if we miss this train, we're probably going to miss our flight. And so we're racing through this subway station, and we see a train there as we go down the stairs, and the doors are open, and we know they're about to close. And I've seen people before that race in there, and they oh, we don't know if it's the right train or not. And so we get there, and we're just like, if we catch the wrong train, we're going to miss our flight. If we miss the right train, we're going miss to miss our flight. And so we race, and we just jump on there, and luckily, it's the right train, and we make it, make it home. And, and what that really revealed to me was the difference that little decisions make. A small decision earlier on can make a huge difference later, along, later down the journey. And, and we go through my, my experience there. If we caught the right bus at the beginning, that would have saved us the whole day. If I had to read the right station on the map, it would have saved us a lot more time. And the fact that we hopped on the right train meant that we actually got home at all. And so little decisions can have huge consequences down the track. Um, another example in my own life, I remember when I was, in my, um, I was finishing up grade 12 and I was about to have my gap year and I was planning on going and working at the snow for a season um, like snowboarding and, and working in one of the, the shops there. And I had a friend who was really keen to do this as well. And, um, and everything was coming together. We, we actually won a snowboard in the lead-up to this. And I was like, God is really leading the way here. And, um, and so I really thought everything was coming together. We went to the interviews and we're about to go. And at the last minute, my friend decided, he said, you know what, I'm not, I don't think I want to go anymore. And I was like, we've what do you mean? This is like my whole next year and you're going to be like my buddy as we go through this and you don't want to do this anymore. And so eventually this whole trip just unraveled last minute and I was just like, man, what am I going to do? So I went and my other friend, Lachlan, who was getting me lost in Seoul, um, he was going this big journey over to America to go to work at summer camps and to go and do the Arise course. And so suddenly this small thing happened and then suddenly my whole... Um, 
year had completely changed. And when I went to Arise, it was there that I felt God calling me to go and do, do, do ministry. And if I didn't go to Arise, I wouldn't go to Avondale College. If I didn't go to Avondale College, I wouldn't be um, here at Kingsliff Church. And I wouldn't be up here preaching today. And it really just reveals to me that the decisions that we make, they might seem small at the time, but they have consequences and they have flow-on effects that, that can have very long-lasting um, impact. On the screen here, we have a drop of water falling into a pond. And this may be, I think this is a good illustration for the way that our decisions function in our lives. Um, in, a, in a pond, just a single little piece of water hits the water and only touches, it only makes contact with a small amount of water. But these circles, these ripples come out from that and they get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until eventually they're hitting the, out, the edges of, of the pond. I remember when I was canoeing only, uh, it was only a couple of weeks back at my parents' place, and we're paddling along this canoe, and suddenly we heard this thing on the side of the river, on the edge of the river, and we thought it was a bird, or a, maybe it was a, a lizard, or something like that, and then we keep paddling along, and we hear it again, oh, what's that? And then pretty soon we, we eventually worked out it was just our ripples from our paddling that was then going across and making this noise on the side of the river, and it was making us think that it was some exciting animal or something. And so we weren't anywhere near that, but our actions and our, um, the things that we were doing were making a, a, a wave, a ripple of effect that was going out and impacting things long from where we were at that time. So let's apply this to our, our situation that we find in, with, with Joseph and David. Two lives that are very, very similar. They both come to this crisis point, this moment of temptation, and let's see what is, is going to happen in both of their lives. We see, um, I've got up here from Patriarchs and Prophets, a very interesting statement that, that, that it has there. It says, Heretofore, this is speaking of Joseph, he had remained untainted by, a, by the corruption teeming in that heathen land. But this temptation, so sudden, so strong, so seductive, how should it be met? And then she says this, His whole future life depended upon the decision of the moment. With inexpressible, inexpressible anxiety, angels looked upon the scene. So we get this sort of sense that as, as Joseph is, is confronted with, um, with Potiphar's wife, this, what his actions are from this point, how he deals with this temptation, is going to have a gigantic impact on the rest of his life. Um, and it says that even the angels there just inexpressible anxiety. What is Joseph going to do? And for those who are familiar with the story, and for those who previously, when we covered the story of Joseph, Joseph gets up, um, Potiphar's wife grabs his cloak, Joseph bails and starts running off, loses his cloak, doesn't stop, he runs off, not wearing any clothes, but he is free from that, the danger of that temptation. And as a result of that decision, and a result of, of of Joseph meeting that temptation. Let's look at some of the things that rippled out from, from that moment. Number one, Joseph became second in charge of the powerful Egyptian empire. Didn't happen straight away, but the situations that came from, that, from him being faithful in that situation, God used those to bring him into his position, which was his calling in life. Secondly, Joseph then was able to witness for God in Pharaoh's palace. Now, Pharaoh was the most powerful person 
in the then known world. And here we have God has a, a person who is there connecting with him on a, on a daily basis, able to be a witness and an influence in, in the land of Egypt. Number three, Joseph then was able to save the lives of all of Egypt and beyond. We see that the famine, he, he, he works out the, the meaning of, of, Pharaoh's, of Pharaoh's dream, and also he puts in the things in place um, in order to have the kingdom ready for, um, for that famine and so that people can survive through that. And we see a huge um, act of salvation is, takes place in, um, in, just from, in a physical sense in, in Egypt and beyond. And finally, Joseph was also able to save God's covenant family, his own family from the famine, through which came the Messiah who brought about salvation for each one of us. So we can see the, the ripple effects from Joseph's life, Joseph's life, which even reached to us right here today. Now remember that line that we, we read in Patriarchs and Prophets, it says, his whole future life depended upon the decision of the moment. And it makes me ask the question, what might have happened if Joseph was unfaithful in that situation? How might the story be different? And the truth is, we don't know what would have happened. God has the ability to, to sort out his solutions in many different ways. But it's interesting to think about what might, not, what might have happened if Joseph had not been faithful. And the reason I share with you the similarities between Joseph's life and David's life at the beginning is we have an example of someone who was faithful in that moment of temptation, and we also have an example of someone who was unfaithful in that moment of temptation. So what we're going to do now is look at the flow-on effect of King David's decision um, that he made in that moment of temptation. So last week we talked about how he was confronted with temptation. Instead of avoiding it, he sends for Bathsheba, he sleeps with her, she becomes pregnant, and the first thing David does is try to cover up. And so as a result of that cover-up, we see um, he, he sends uh, Joab, and Joab, who's in, in the midst of this, this battle, that, um, actually first let me just introduce you to the, the people on the screen, and this will sort of help us. So David, we see up the top Bathsheba, so that's the one who um, was the one bathing on the roof. Joab is the commander of David's army. The kingdom, that's just referring to the kingdom that David is now ruling over. Amnon is David's firstborn. Absalom is David's thirdborn. And Israel is just referring to all the people that he's, he's are in his, um, under his rule and his influence. So, so David sends a message to Joab to, to, just, to kill Bathsheba's husband in order to cover up this, this, this sin that he did. And as a result of this, we see Joab becomes a partner in murder. We see Bathsheba's husband is now dead, and Israel also has an unknown number of soldiers who are also killed in that scenario as well. Now, also we see that the trust in the kingdom must have been damaged, because here we have Uriah, who's one of David's best men, who is off fighting for, for, for Israel, fighting for David, and to have David treat him in this, in this way must have damaged the trust that was there within the kingdom. So along comes Nathan the prophet and comes and gives this big um, convicting message to, to David. And at the end of that, he, he gives a bit of an outline of some of the things that are going to happen in David's life. And grab your Bibles and let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 9. 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 9. 
Okay, 2 Samuel 12, verse 9, and it says, so here we have Nathan. He's ba- Nathan here is basically giving David um, a bit of a picture of what's going to happen in the future. And he says, Why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do what is evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of, of the Ammonites. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will, I will raise up evil against you out of the, your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this, of this son." For you did it in secretly, and before, uh, and before. Oh, sorry. And you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all, all Israel and before the sun. And David said to Nathan, "I have sinned against the Lord." And Nathan said to David, "The Lord also has put away your sin; you shall not die." Nevertheless, because by this deed you have uttered scorn the, the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And what we see here is this incredible forgiveness that is given to David, but there's also, he's given the sad sort of reality that these decisions that he has made are going to have a flow-on effect. The ripples from this decision are going to impact the people around him as well. And so the, the first thing that happens after this is um, this new child that is born dies. Following that, we have um, a terrible situation. Um, David's Firstborn son Amnon develops a crush for his half sister Tamar. Okay, twisted situation. It was just as as twisted back then as it sounds for us today. And there's a situation where he, he falls in love with his, his half sister, and then um, he he asks David to go and bring her in to, so that she can feed him. Next thing he, he rapes his, his half sister, and it's this really messy sort of thing that happens. And in this whole situation, we see that. The, the things that David did, the deeds of David, are then sort of setting an example that is then being picked up by the, his, his children. And you can just imagine David wanting to discipline his son, but then realizing, man, I've, fall, I've fallen short in these same sorts of areas. And so his ability to, to lead his, his children is then become, begins to become compromised. The next thing, Absalom, who's who's a full sister of Tamar, becomes very angry. And, and his anger turns into this hatred. And for two years, Absalom doesn't talk to Amnon at all, neither anything good or anything bad. And it's just this, 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 this hatred that just begins to fester in, in, the, in the mind of Absalom. And Tamar, who then lives in Absalom's house, is just this constant reminder of the deeds of, of Amnon. And it just grows his hatred even more as it goes through. And so what Absalom does, is he, two years after this, he then holds his feast, and he, and he invites his, his brother Amnon along. Amnon comes there, Absalom, in this, in this fury, sends his, his, his servants, and they go and they kill Amnon. And so now we have, we have a murder in, in, in the family. Here we see that the ripples are, are flowing out through, through um, David's life. The next thing is Absalom flees for his life, and it's as if he's, he's exiled, and for three years, Absalom is, is, is staying away from Jerusalem, staying away from his father, and he's just in, basically in hiding. Um, Joab then um, sends, or goes to David and convinces David to let Absalom come back to, to the palace, and David says, okay, he can come back. 
as long as he stays in his own house and he doesn't come and see my face. And so we have this, this, this really tense situation, this tense relationship in, in David's family. And, and, and Absalom's there in Jerusalem, but, but, but he's not able to see his, his father David. And so Absalom then tries to convince Joab to come and, and to talk to David, to let David see Absalom. And Joab wants nothing to do with it. So what Absalom does, he goes lights Joab's field on fire and he's like, now will you come and listen to me? And so we see Joab just continually gets caught up in the, in the mess that, that flows on from here. His, his field's set on fire. Then Absalom is, is brought back into the, the city of... of he's already in Jerusalem, but then he's allowed to go back into the presence of his father. And when he's there, he starts to do this very um, sly, tricky thing where he, he stands at the gate of Jerusalem... And whenever someone comes to Jerusalem with some sort of a, a, a problem, some sort of a dispute to bring it to the king, Absalom says, oh, tell me your problems. And he listens to them and he says, oh, that'd be great if the king could, to, could help you in that situation. But the king doesn't have anything, anything to sort of, doesn't have a person in charge of this. There's no one to help you. Um, oh man, if I was king, and he starts saying this to the people, if I was king, I would listen to all of your your, your disputes, I would help you in all these situations. And then he said, the Bible says he'd give them a big hug and a kiss. And, and it says that he began to win over and steal the hearts of the people of, of Israel. And also he rode around on a horse and chariot with 50 men going before, and he's, and he's conducting himself like a king. And soon he begins to really um, build up his presence in, in the kingdom. This... Um, this, um, this presence that he, he builds up turns into a uh, full-on rebellion and he calls, and all these people that he's now his sympathizers, he, he gets this big feast and he gets them there and often a lot of them they don't even know what they're coming there for and they get there and he, and he says, and he gets them to declare that he is king. And so suddenly we have two kings in Israel. We have David and then we have Ab- Absalom who's now declared king. The people are starting to love Absalom and there's this massive destabilization that takes place in the kingdom. And David then, fearing for his own life and feeling for what might happen, he then takes a bunch of the men and he flees and it goes from massive destabilization into, um, into civil, civil war. But before the civil war happens, the story gets even nastier. Absalom is there in Jerusalem and he brings in one of David's um, trusted advisors who... Um, this trusted advisor who had, he'd won over in, in this whole situation. And he brings him and he says, what should I do now that I'm king in Jerusalem? And he says, he says to Absalom, he says, go take your king's or your father's concubines and set up a tent on the, the roof of, your, of the palace and sleep with them there in the sight of all of Israel just to sort of prove that you are now king. And so we see this, this really nasty incest, rape, times about 10 or however many concubines David had, starts to take place. And as I said, that turns into the massive destabilization. Civil war comes from that. Fear is now the emotion being felt in the kingdom. Before it was peace, um, David had a, got rid of the enemies and finally they had rest after so many years. And suddenly the kingdom is thrown back into a state of fear. And in the civil war that, that goes on, Absalom leads... All of Israel against David, but David's men are the men who are trained in war. They're, they're, they're better warriors. And we see 20,000 
people of Israel are killed. Is this escalating? Not to think of all their families, which then were impacted, which then impacted further and further, and the ripples are spreading far and wide here. And then eventually, oh, then after that, the, the advisor, when he realizes that Absalom's going to lose, he then goes and commits suicide. And finally, Absalom, the story that is most famous with Absalom, he's riding along on his horse, fleeing, and he has these beautiful locks of hair that get caught in a tree, and his, and his, and his mule goes on without him, and he's left hanging there, Along comes Joab, and he gets three javelins, and he pierces um, Absalom through the heart, and even that doesn't kill him, and he gets his ten men who then cut him down and finish off the job. Pretty bad story, isn't it? Could there be a, a bigger contrast between the story of Joseph... The two stories that were so similar, the story of Joseph and David, could there be a bigger contrast in how these stories end up? And when you trace the ripples back, you see that one of the decisive moments was the moment of this sudden temptation that they were thrown into in the issue of Potiphar's wife and the issue of Bathsheba. So what are the lessons that we can learn from these observations in Scripture? Firstly, our lives matter and our decisions matter. Often we think that we're just a little person in a planet of how it was, 7 billion people in the world or something like that, of a lot of people, and what difference does my life make? And the story of this is that our lives make a huge impact in the world around us. Our decisions make a gigantic impact, not just in our lives, but in the lives of those close to us and the lives of the people close to them and the people who eventually are quite distant from us. Let me read you um, another quote from the book Testimonies for the Church, Volume 2. This is written by Ellen White, one of the founders of Seventh-day Adventist Church. And it says, she says, Every act of our lives affects others for good or evil. Our influence is tending upward or downward. It is felt acted upon, and to a greater or lesser degree, degree reproduced by others. If, our, if by our example we aid others in the development of good principles, we give them power to do good. In their turn, they exert the same beneficial influence upon others, and thus hundreds and thousands are affected by our unconscious influence. Does your life matter? Our lives make a huge impact in, in our world. The ripples of our life go on through our community, they go on through, down through the years and the generations, and some, some of those ripples are ripples for good, and some of those ripples are ripples for evil. And this is something that, this thought is a thought that is very motivating to me. Firstly, it's, it's, a, it's a somber um, thought, it's, it's a thought that makes me take the decisions in my life very seriously, it's a, it's a thought that makes me, when, when I come to life decisions and the, and the things that I'm facing, it really impresses upon me with the need to really go to God and to spend time in His Word and to make sure I have a strong connection with God because I don't know the impact of my decisions. I often don't know what the right thing to do is. And so it's important to have God's Holy Spirit leading us. But the reason I find it motivating and is, is that if we do little things for good, for God, 
If God works us to serve people, to help people in often just little ways, those little things can go on to make a dramatic difference in the scheme or in the big picture in, in eternity. And we see that this in another quote in Desire of Ages, page 823. It says, The humblest worker moved by the Holy Spirit will touch invisible chords whose vibrations will ring to the ends of the earth and make melody through eternal ages. Does your life have purpose? If we are living a life for God, the things that we do, even the smallest things that we do for God, make an impact, a big impact on eternity. So the first point is our lives matter and our decisions matter. The second thing is this. Sin is ugly. Sin is messy. Why is it that God hates sin so much? Why is it that God is so strong on sin? Often we look at the things that we do that are in disobedience to God and we say, oh, it's just such a small thing. I think one of the reasons that God is so strong on sin is that God sees the end consequences of our sins. We don't see where the ripples end up. But God looks down and he sees that our decisions affect other people, which affect other people, which affect other people. And you only need to look at the story of, um, of Adam and Eve right back in the beginning. We see the fruit. Oh, it looks so good. It can't be that bad for me. What have been the ripple effects of that? Every single hardship that we face is a ripple that has flown out from that decision right down and is impacting us today. And the thing is, we look at the story of, of Joseph and we look at the story of, of David. And David's life, while it had this ugly moment of the, the temptation with Bathsheba, it wasn't just, his life wasn't a complete failure. We read in, we've got back here, 1 Kings 15, 5, it says, David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. And so the life of David, although there was this terrible thing that he did, which had terrible consequences, there was a lot of good ripples that he sent out as well. And we think of the fact that he brought stabilization to the kingdom of Israel. He kicked out so many of the people that, that God had asked him to kick out of the land. And think of all the negative influences that were removed from the people of Israel by doing those things. We look at Israel's life, we look at his, his deep connection, I mean, David's life, we look at his deep connection with God, we look at his, his, his deep experience of repentance, and we think about the Psalms that have been written down, and the thousands upon thousands and millions of people that have been impacted through the words of David in, in the Bible. And we see that a life is not one big splash that makes either ripple for wickedness or for good, but our lives are a combination of the, of the two. And every single one of us, when we look back, and I look back at my life, there's things that I've done where I've hurt people, where I've disobeyed God, and I know that those things have left ripples that are destructive, but also God is working through me in order to create ripples that are for good as well. So sin is ugly, sin is messy, God hates sin because sin makes such a destructive impact in our life. The next life lesson is grace is amazing. God looks down on our mess. God looks down on our sin. And he understands how sinful we are way more than we could possibly understand. And yet God still loves us. And God still extends his hand of forgiveness to us. 
Remember what happened in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 13. We see Nathan comes in and, and basically opens up before um, David all of the sins that he has just committed. And says, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, now this is instantaneous. He says, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. The greater the sin, the greater the impact of that sin, the greater the forgiveness that God extends to us. Turn with me to Psalm 32. Psalm chapter 32. We read this last week, but I want to bring your attention to it once again. When David looked, and it must have broken David's heart to see the destruction that his decision had made. But when he looked at his life, he had these words to say. Psalm 32 verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Verse 3. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. We have a God who has amazing grace and amazing forgiveness, and it doesn't matter what we do in our life when we get on our knees like David. God is there ready with his arms open to forgive us and to cleanse us from all of the wickedness that we've had in our life. So life lesson is grace is amazing, and the final thing is God can still bless our mess. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. We haven't spent a lot of time in the New Testament since we've been preaching through the Old Testament. But we get to the opening verse of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. And what this is going to do is give a genealogy of all of the the people through whom the Messiah has come. And this is what it says in verse 1. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of who? The son of David. What was the ripple effect of the decision that David made? Well, one of those ripple effects was that God used what had come from David's life, and through that, he brought about the Messiah. And more than that, God wanted us to realize that. If you go down to verse 6, it says, it's going through Abraham, the father of Isaac, the father of Jacob, the father of his brothers, the father of Perez, etc., etc. We get to verse 6, and it says, And Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. A lot of, it doesn't say who all the other wives are when you read through this passage. Why is it that Matthew makes such an important point to include um, that Solomon was by the wife of Uriah. Clearly, Matthew is wanting us to realize that even though David created this mess, God took this mess and he blessed it. And through that, he brought about Jesus himself, who has become the savior of the world, has become the savior of you and the savior of me. Final verse, Acts chapter 13, continuing on this thought. Acts 13, verse 21. 
Here we see um, Paul giving a bit of a, a summary of, of parts of the, of, of, of the Old Testament story, the, the, the blazing grace story. And Acts 13, verse 21, this is what Paul says. He says, Then they asked for, for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. Verse 22. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. How does Scripture remember David? Scripture remembers David as a man after God's own heart. And when we look back at the, what we had up on the screen earlier, and we see all the mess and the chaos that came from David's life, we see in God's incredible forgiveness. When God looks down at the, the, the story of David, he looks and he sees a man whom we can learn lessons from, and he sees a man whom he loves, he sees a man who's been cleansed and forgiven, and he sees a man who's a man after God's own heart. Verse um, 23, it goes on to say again, Of this man's offspring, by Uriah, doesn't say this, but of the wife of Uriah, God has brought to Israel a saviour, Jesus, as he promised. The message is that God can still bless our mess. So as you go into your weeks this week, realize that your life is exceedingly important, has exceeding meaning, and makes an exceeding impact on the world around us. Realize that sin is ugly, sin is messy, and we would do well to keep as far away from it as we can, even though we're so entwined in it and messed up in it. Sin always brings about destruction. Always remember that God's grace is, un- is infinite, that God's grace always flows out to us no matter what we do. And remember that if you stuff up, God can still bless your mess. Today we, we're in, we have been impressed by the impact that our life can make in this world. And each one of us does little things, little actions, makes little decisions. But Father, you have a plan for our lives that those little things that we do reach on right through to eternity, Lord. And we pray that that you will show us how to make good decisions, Lord. Show us how to resist temptation. Show us how to strike those invisible chords that ring melody right through to eternity. And Lord, I also pray that when we make mistakes and things are heartbreaking and and there's all sorts of things that have happened as a result of our actions, Lord. We pray that you will, like David, that you will bring us to our knees in repentance, in confession. And Lord, may we experience the incredible love and forgiveness and grace that you extend to us. And Father, may you impact our lives in such a way that we begin to reflect that same sort of love and grace and compassion on those around us as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.